0: and so there's no introduction needed we're just going because we're already been talking stories and we're already telling ray tremor jr ray tremor senior or i'm sorry the third excuse me i was going up i gotta go down (laughs) fellas thanks for joining me man this is cool so we already been chatting and we already lost like five minutes of good conversation because i didn't hit the record button and I should know by now that every time I do this show, as soon as we enter the room, I should be recording because the stuff that comes out in the beginning that I never capture is probably some of the best stuff. But we were talking about, now, we're going to get into both your stories. You're both career firemen. Uh, Ray Jr., Ray, you are retired out of the FDNY. Uh, you know, Ray the third, the younger generation, he's uh, currently a career fireman. So I want to get into both your careers. But I think really the beginning and the dynamic duo that you two are is what really is the appeal for me um and like we were saying before we hit record i love my relationship with my father and a lot of it has to do with my volunteer firehouse and watching and growing up there as a kid being a legacy fireman and making him proud and following in those big shoes um and i know that you guys have a lot of that and so um, Big Ray, maybe you can start the story for me. I mean, a little bit about you and and so on, and then uh, and then we'll follow that legacy conversation about what it was like, Ray the Third, for growing up in uh, in that house. Well, I'll back it up even earlier. Yeah, my
1: dad was a detective sergeant in organized crime in New York City. Oh, so I was the family. What years three. was what years was that? I think he went from. 52 to 88. Oh, the heyday. 35 and uh, a half the heyday of organized crime. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, like, you go on Netflix and you watch these um, serial killer and a lot of the other stuff. Yeah. You see on the collar OCCB, Organized Crime Control Bureau, which I, I love that series that's out now because they use the right language. And the cast of characters that I grew up with come around the house, like his driver was another sergeant. This guy, Frankie Cognetta, they called him Snake. Big arms, tattoos, you know, earrings. He supposedly had 40-something kills as a mercenary before he became a cop. Gosh, yeah. But that was the 50s, 60s, 70s cops. You know, it it was blue bloods. Sure. So, unfortunately, when I took the test, I took it in 79. I was number 326 on a list of 60,000. But what, police or fire? Police police okay and first day of medicals first 400 they call go up and they failed everybody because of affirmative action except for certain people right so it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth year and a half later it's all cleared up and i was you just have a chip on your spine oops we made a mistake and it, it's the classic story within a week the troopers police and fire all call me yes so now I go, well, i'm not gonna be a trooper screw that i'm not gonna go live up in new pulse <laughs> and my father's like you know i've you're gonna become a cop, right? And I took a marker and I wrote, you know, "F you" on it.
0: Oh, so yikes. he's like
1: seriously. He's I'm seeing Sergeant, and whatever you want. And my father didn't ask for anything from anybody. Right. He was just a really quiet guy. You know, six foot, two eighty five, fifty two jacket, big opposing guy that said nothing. Would have loved to have known where that height
0: went. You know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. You just it's nobody has money. to know. It's yeah. his
1: mother's fault. It's not Man, mom. No. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I was like, no, I I don't want any part of it. He's like, seriously. He's like, no, I said, I'm going to become a fireman. Squat when you pee, you're going to be a caveman.
0: What are you (laughs) going to do? I had to hear it all. And what was it? When was that? That was what? Eight early eighties, late seventies, early eighties, somewhere around there. 42 years ago,
1: coming up this Monday, January 7th, I got sworn in. Okay. Um, did it in the fashion Institute in Manhattan. And then on the ninth, I started at Randall's Island for the massive five and a half week Academy course.
2: Yeah. Where did you
0: grow up? Did you grow up in the city? Staten Island, Staten Island. Okay.
1: Staten Island boy, which Staten Island was all caught flying and sanitation. You either got a city job, went to college or went to jail. I mean, that's pretty much the the way it was back then. Right. Um, so going to the Academy and you know, the funny part about the Academy is, um, you know, they bust your chops. You're not making any money. And so 1982, we had this one lieutenant Sacramento. You made a mistake. Everything was a dollar in the burn center can Because that's a big thing in New York. Put any extra change in there. And it supports the uh, families and everything.
2: <coughs>
1: and um short of it all is, you now we had a party the day before graduation. And, oh, one guy got sent furthest from home. He said, he's a $2 penalty tomorrow. I'm like, oh, who is it? Nah, nah, don't worry about it. You know, sure enough. Yep. 78 guys sitting there. Asshole. Stand up. What? Tremor. Stand up. You're going to 69 engine. Uh, what do I know? I'm from 22 year old idiot from Staten Island. Harlem. I guess I had this look on my face. He's like, you don't even fucking know where Harlem is. I'm like, Nope.
0: Not only that, but it's your <laughs> premier engine company throughout the entire FDMY, right? 69. Harlem,
1: Harlem Hilton. Yeah. A right. truck. Uh, Neary. Uh, I went there. It was only a few months after uh, the rope broke, where uh, Frisbee and Fitzpatrick died. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he thought he was screwing me, but we didn't know he, again, you know, the father, it's the greatest gift he probably ever gave me because uh, they threw me to the fire with these maniacs that I thought back then.
0: And uh, Well, the early <laughs> 80s, right? I mean, that that is still the heyday of fire. There's still a lot of fire happening in 82. Uh,
1: if you didn't go to a fire a day, yeah it was a slow day i mean i've had i had night tours with five six seven seven fires yeah you know you pull up it's a big six-story new law tenement and you got three floors of fire and this building is massive you know you basically have 25 apartments going you know and just all right, all right. you know and then you know and back that at that time and we had an arsonist so fires knocked down all of a sudden you hear, uh, you know, ladder two, eight to uh, battalion one, six, go ahead. Uh, one five, Oh, in Amsterdam, we have another column. All right. So we'll send some units and pack up and just go to the next fourth alarm. You know, it, it, it was crazy back then, but tremendous experience. Um, I got transferred to Brooklyn pretty quickly. You know, I, I did somebody a favor and
0: were you trying to get home? Like were you trying to get closer to home? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I figured I I, I wasn't ready to become a, a total, um total maniac
0: yeah
1: and yeah, because i'm driving from staten island and three hours on a good day to get to harlem that's right you know so it 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 was a hassle the george washington bridge only fun part about that is watching the idiots run into each other and keep on going
0: there you go Uh, so that's how you would commute you'd actually go in the new jersey go up the turnpike and then go back across the george to get to harlem yeah yeah Yeah. instead of going up through the city sure Oh, yeah, and back
1: then, the FDR drive. I tried that one day and blew out a tire. And I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll go the long
0: way. Not a good place to blow out a tire. No. no Randy, let me ask you this. Coming from a police family like that, though, I mean, you knew that side of the civil service job. Correct. The fire for you, though, was, was it the stability of a civil service job in New York City in the late 70s, early 80s that was the appeal growing up in a blue-collar house like that? I mean, did you not care? I mean... Because what did you know about the fire service? Did you know anything?
1: I'd never even seen a house on fire. That's until what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, well, it, basically, the rule in the house was it graduated high school. Right? You're going to college, you're paying room and board. Yeah. I'm like, what? Yeah, you got me – I want $55 a week. I'm like, I'll go to college. That yeah, I'm going to school. That rule carried on, too. So. Oh, yeah.
0: nice. We'll, right, we're going to get to you. I can't yeah. wait to hear about your upbringing.
1: <laughs> yeah, so the old man put me through college. Um, I'm only a semester short of a uh a bachelor's in economics, but I, I have a business degree in economics and became a fireman. But um yeah, it was uh you know, if you're not gonna pay attention in college, a 2.5 grade point average isn't gonna get you far. You know, a friend of mine offered a job in Campbell's soup, I lasted a day. Yeah. Went up there checked it out I'm, and you, know, you get some suits mouthing off, and like, nah, this ain't for me, not for you. Yeah, he's like, you, he says, You're 21 years old, you're gonna start at 55,000, which was crazy money in '82. You know, no, now I'm gonna become a fireman for 22,000. Um, yeah, I, I knew nothing, I knew nothing, I, I knew about cops and you know, the other police stuff and all that. And uh, it's funny because, like you said, I never seen a house on fire, and the girl I was dating at the time, we coming back from a wedding. And we're coming through Staten Island, coming down Richmond Avenue, and I see this vacant house up on a hill. And it's roaring. A couple of trucks and engines are they're already working on it. Suit, shoes. Pull the car over, leave her in it. I trudging through the snow and I'm I'm just looking at it, looking at it, taking in the smell. Yeah. And uh, you know, Finan comes by, he's like, get out of here. You can't be here. I'm like, no, no. I said I'm going to the academy in two weeks. Oh, cool, come here. Breathe right in front door. The chief's like, "What are you doing?" He's like, he's going to the academy in two weeks." Oh, cool! Come on in. Nice. They show me how to pull ceilings. I'm in a suit and tie. Yeah. Looking at this, and I came. Well, they're
0: out not wearing much different. They're wearing jeans and uh, you know, a coat, yeah, maybe, right? Yeah, a blero
1: short coat. Yeah, and, right. And the boots not pulled up. And it's funny. I remember we got back in the car. The suit was ruined. My face is dirty. I'm filthy and I stunk. I sat in the car and look, and the mascaras running down her face. She's like, "You're out of your effing mind." I'm like, that is the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. This was the best date I've I've ever had. Oh, it's like an addiction. You know, it's like that first snort and you're done, you know, and (laughs) and that's what it was. Yeah. And like I said, the Academy is so short back then. It was the classic. Yeah, this is a fire truck's red, fire's hot. Forget everything. They'll teach you what you need. And, you know, like I said, they have a little concrete room. They put the oak in the barrel, shut the doors, get down, Pull your glove off. That, That was the smokehouse. That was it. It's all the fire we saw. Next day, I'm up in Harlem and the fire is rolling down. I got two burnt firemen. And like, this isn't what what they told me it was going to be like. But that,
0: though, is where you learn the job. Correct. I mean, and, and that's the thing. And it's like, you know, today we get so, so busy with what the check boxes have to be, all the mandatory training, safety stuff, check, you know, check the boxes as we go. And back then it was, here's the basics. Now go learn correct right and
1: that's it. you listen to the senior man you know and we had a fire up there i guess it was like only had three months on and i wound up with the uh, nozzle pull up engine only because ers no contact back then pull up the whole top floor is roaring throw a portable up go on the second floor and by the time the truck got there we were already stretching so we're waiting and we're on the fourth floor landing the fifth floor the stairway's got stuff in it. So we're standing on the side waiting for the truck to pull the stuff out. And I'm looking. There's no doorknob. And I could see the fire in the hallway rolling right at us. So like the guy behind me, Petey Morgan, a little, little guy, awesome guy. I mean, I, I owe so much to him. I'm like, Pete, He looked. he's like, look at the chief, lieutenant. He's like, well, what are you waiting for? Pushed the door open and the fire is right there. And just, you know, it's your classic tenement. You had a straight wall on the right hand side. And Pete's like, put your right shoulder to the wall, don't stop. And you know, two hands in your shoulders, and he's just going, going, going. And they're setting up tower ladder as we come around. I'm hitting it. And all of a sudden, look, I can see the tower ladder. The floor's already burned through. Yeah. I'm like, and he hit they're starting water. Then Petey's just like, he said, Be a turtle and don't move. I'm like, what? And he grabbed my helmet, pulled it down, and tucked his face underneath. And we got blasted. I mean. My coat was the first TC two, the first rubberized one, and I had to bring it back to coins the next day. It was all burned, no shit, all cracked and everything else. But is, the whole point was this is
0: like, go ahead, please. Yeah, this is
1: classic senior guy, make like a turtle. Like you can't hear that today. No. You know, oh, you, did you have your hood on? Did you have everything? No. I mean, didn't have a mask on. This it, is it, this is pre. Were you wearing SCBA at that point? had scbas but i mean it was it was so free burning it's so clear well that's right and basically oh you want to wear that mask you're a pussy I'm like oh, oh no
0: i don't want it yeah, yeah. yes sir yeah uh, I, I mean that was that was real i mean you're looking at ordinary combustibles right you had a lot of natural that the smoke itself was those buildings weren't built like they were they were able to vent easily right um yeah, you know, you,
1: water left
0: and you're able to you're able to duck walk and get under that smoke layer, so you could get in pretty far without being on that mask. Well, Very yeah. different today, for sure. There's nobody well, turtling and and holding their play. Guys are running out the door. We see it all the time. Well, correct, and
1: that's what I was just going to say. It's the whole idea was this is how you learn to breathe. Yeah. this is how you save yourself. You know, yeah. deal with it. Yeah, and you know, we we wound up. I wound up putting out three apartments of fire. I turn around, my guys had already bailed out. They were laughing at me in the hallway, and you know. But it, it was such an old school. It was so such a different tradition. My probie patch came off my helmet that day. Three oh, months. Three months on the job.
0: Yeah, but I mean, but that's it, man. They're setting you. They're setting you up for success when you have people like that that you can lean back on, and that's why, like. You look at today where people talk about, you know, the lack of leadership, the lack of senior men, the lack of this, the lack of that. I mean, we there is something to that. I, I push back a little bit all the time when we use that as a crutch or or a way to just dismiss what's happening and we're not willing to put the work in. But there is definitely something to that. Ray, you can speak to this. I mean,
2: yeah, I mean, you're, you're spot on. Like, I think, you know, we talk about it all the time in, in, in everything, in work, in the training world, like that lack of senior guy. And that lack of just the the knowledge that oh, those guys, that generation had, there's such a generational gap, I think in the fire service today that we're missing that, that piece. Like that's, if you look at the big puzzle of today's fire service, that's the piece that's missing is that generational gap that we lost a lot. And, you know, between the decline in fires and the increase in emergencies and the, the, the focusing on like you hit before, like yeah, everything now is just a check mark. And it's we're so hyper focused on these little aspects of the fire service and not the big picture that we've gotten away from the true real world tactics like, you know, we've got Yeah, we've gotten away from the stuff that's going to save your life, not the classroom stuff that, hey, this is what you need to know. It's what's going to save your life in an emergency and that that is such a far gone experience that there's this much of it left.
0: Yeah, it's instinctual, right? But the problem is, Ray, and I'll say this, right? Your father just talked about knocking down three three apartments of fire, right? When's the last time you or I knocked down three apartments of fire?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's you know it's, it's, it's it's common. It's, it's, it's you're you know the timer's shorter, fires are hotter, fires burn weirder. Yeah, it's a, it's a different it's a different world.
0: Yeah, I remember a fire not too long, you know, within the last few years, where um it had a really good head start. We made it. We punched it. Made a good stop. We got in. We're making progress. Uh, We had some water supply issues. And so we had some time to hang out in the hallway. And I grabbed a couple of the young kids, not young kids, younger guys that have been on for a few years. I said, come here, come here, come here. I rushed them up the hallway to me. They came up where we had the line. And I said, I want you to stand here when we have no water. I want you to watch the fire behavior. I want you to watch it reignite in this room, come up and across. I want you to see how it comes down the hallway. It's coming over our heads. We're waiting for water now. You know we're waiting. How it travels, watch the direction moves and breathe. How often? How often do you get to do that in a real environment? Right? We could do it in a burn can. We could do it at an academy, but it's not real when there's not ordinary combustibles in there. And so it was. It was such a learning experience, not just for them, but even for myself. All these years, I get to like sit there and watch this because we had nothing else to do but wait and watch. It was.
1: It was a TikTok video. They like the corner of the room. You see right across yeah uh, i sent it to a bunch of people they're like oh that's awesome I'm like no you don't understand yeah i do watch tiktok videos the old guy does i see you later. That's
0: but, amazing uh, i love it
1: no it, they, they really there's some ridiculously good stuff and this thing is rolling across it's a it's a perfect rollover and people are like oh my god that must that must be amazing i'm like no you don't understand Idiots like me used to sit there and watch and yeah. wait for it. They're yeah. like, why would you do that? They're like, there's no sense killing it until you can appreciate it. They're like, what? You know, because it's just, it's an amazing thing to see.
0: There's there's something about that, right? I mean, we all do this for many different reasons. The love of it, though, is certainly a big part of it for all of us, right? It's magic.
1: Yeah. Sometimes and- you look at it and it seems like
0: magic.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's nature. Nature at its finest. I mean, people like sunsets and beaches and all this stuff, like fires a piece of nature, man, and what it does and what how it, what it everything about it is it's nature.
0: Yeah, it's power, it's intent, all of it. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild, man. That, I mean, I think that's how a lot of us become infatuated with it, you know? Yeah. And and how some lose their ways and go to the other side. Yeah. I mean, how you know, it it becomes a, it becomes hypnotic in a way. You know, it yeah. certainly can. Right. Take me down the, the road a little bit more with your career, then, because I want to jump over to your son also and and get a little background on him and so on. So, from from uh, Harlem, we went to Brooklyn. Right. Yeah, I went
1: to a 241 engine. Okay. Uh, I did uh, two years there. Then I went across the floor to 109 truck, which I mean, that's always my favorite piece of machinery. Right. Power yeah.
0: ladder or a str- a rear mount?
1: Single axle, C grade rear mount. Did I have Re- the phone booth? Uh no, it was the, wow. the next model above that. Got it. The ones with the phone booth was so horrible. I, I ever loved it. the phone booth, but drive you're sitting there and it was like a bus. The steering wheel is here. They sounded better than any rig in the world. Yeah. They didn't get out of their own way. Yeah. And yeah, yeah they, they were they were horrible. But the next that ugly was, beauty, man. Yeah, the early 80s was my favorite truck. Single axle, throw the levers two jacks down nothing 30 seconds you're already up on the pedestal and yeah. uh so I, I was the uh a backup chauffeur for, for a long time okay and um i got injured and uh after i had <laughs> i actually had surgery they were trying to put me out and uh i kind of caught the right doctor and he's like oh you want to go in front of the board i'm like no i want to go back he's like what do you got your mind he says give me a pension. I said, I'm 32 years old. What am I going to wow. do? Yeah. He's like, all right, well, he says, uh, I've been waiting 20 years for a guy like you to ask to, to not not get free money. So give me a doctor's note. So I called up my surgeon. I told him, listen, I'll transfer to Staten Island, go to a slower company. And uh, you know, I, I just need a letter. He's like, all right, cool. So I'm back the next day with this letter, uh, got full duty, stopped in 109, emptied my locker. And then I went to rescue. <laughs> yeah. Because that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on paper, we did less calls. It's just all fire duty and, and, and emergencies.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: No, so, uh, then, uh, uh, I went to rescue until I got hurt in, uh, at the flight 800 crash.
0: Late 800. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about that, but, um, let me ask you this back then. Right. So what are we talking like mid, mid eighties, late eighties for rescue five? Uh, 1990. 90. Okay. So what did this? What did the sock program look like in 1990 versus what it is today? I mean, I have to think that it's it was changing then. Yeah,
1: you know, in the 80s when Ray Downey was yeah. was really building everything, um, you had to be a giant. You know, these six foot three gorillas. Sorry, right big guys. <laughs> yeah, <down> yeah. Out. <laughs> but he would have been a confined space guy, which that's what I was. I was one of the smaller guys compared to some of these guys. Um, you know, back then you, you had, and you had to have a skill welder, electrician, you know, um, Charlie Driscoll was the captain of rescue five at the time. He was originally a cop who carpooled with my father in the fifties. So he'd been on me for years and I actually saw him at a funeral and he's like, I need you. Come on. It's time. Seven years I've been chasing you. So, and he, but he knew I had the uh, automotive, uh, I uh, do heavy collision work. I build cars. Yeah. I run heavy equipment. Uh, I can frame. Yeah, I was one of those guys. I had a little body shop. And I, I would do repairs, break jobs, you know, minor dents and stuff. And, like, somebody would call me up and say, hey, I need. we're building a big deck. We need a couple guys. So we're doing an extension. All right, cool. And I'd shut the shop down for a week and go frame or side or, you know, just whatever. Because it was just fun to just do something different. But in the meantime, but it you was went- back. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I had a lot of skills, which caused me some issues my first night there, because I guess I thought who the hell I was, but that that's all part of it. You know, But uh...
0: that learning curve, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, that's the one thing that I think is really interesting. And I think it's something that is an issue in the fire service today. It's like guys get a little bit of experience and then they go to another company. And they don't, they have a hard time backing it down and, and becoming a little more humble to learn the lay to land and they come in pretty heavy. Um, it's not the best move all the time. No, no,
1: it's, and to to be able to keep your mouth shut and you're the senior guy, you know, sitting there with, with uh, 11 and a half years on the job and, right. and right. a little bit of a bitter taste in my mouth, I was injured and you now I'm all by myself here and You know, everybody everybody thinks it's funny. Ah, you're going to get the Golden Parachute, you're a piece of crap, and you don't hear from anybody, which kind of set a bad taste in my mouth. And it's no disrespect to 109-241, greatest house, you know, out there. I I walk in the door today, I go to their functions, and I get treated very, very well. Yeah. You know, but it's just, it was time. You know, which explains kind of his personality a little bit, too.
0: Yeah, well, so I kind of want to, you know, I kind of want to jump in here because so that was the 1990 is when you got back to Staten Island, which was your home borough. Ray, what year were you born?
2: I was born in 88. So he was, he was in one Oh nine. My first memories as a like young, young, like two, three year old. um, He made a massive grab one night. So like my first vivid memories of the fire service is news cameras in our house as a kid and him holding me on his lap being interviewed by news cameras and uh cnn yeah cnn really? and, stuff like that. Yeah. and then when he went to rescue i was you know 19 so i'm now three at the time and uh yeah it was just it was that's how i kind of came into that that life of just a lot of news cameras a lot of injuries and a lot of just more bad days than good days in the fire service from when i was younger
0: don't mind me i'm writing that down <laughs> well there's you know there's there's lines that catch me during episodes and more bad days than good days and you know growing up i mean ray i gotta think growing up right one i know how i put my father on a pedestal and i looked at him as superman this guy could yeah. not be hurt he couldn't be knocked down he's as strong as they come i'm sure you had very much the same belief in your own father and yet you probably saw a lot of struggles growing up
2: yeah, I mean, like I said, from those early memories on, it it actually – it turned me off. Um, mm. you know, there's pictures of me when I was three or four wearing his gear. Like, one of the greatest pictures I have now is I've got his rescue helmet on, wearing his turnouts in our kitchen in Staten Island. And, uh, you know, we love the picture. But that's kind of the last memory I have of really wanting to be a fireman until much, much later. Because all I saw from him was him wearing – you know, he, he got – uh, he had to have major eye surgery at one point. So for months he was wearing an eye patch and was in and out of surgery. When he broke his back at flight 800, I found him on the floor laying there calling for help at eight years old, you know, yeah, call
1: uncle John. I can't move. Yeah.
2: Seeing the guys have to come to the house to pick him up to get him into an ambulance and then seeing the ambulance, take him away from home. And, uh, you know, like I, I have all the good memories too. Like we can, we can talk for days about the good memories, sure. the Christmas parties, stuff like that. But, you know, from my first memories as a kid to, to being, you know, when he officially retired, like, I remember his retirement party and just the, the sad atmosphere it was because he wasn't done and, you know, it was taken from him and he was forced to retire. So I looked at that and I look, I, I kind of at eight or nine, I was like, why the hell would I, would I ever want to do that? Like, I don't want to be a fireman you know, and there was a period of my life from like 10, we, we moved out to Jersey at, I think I was what, 12, 12 or 13. Um, it was 24 years ago. So you were 11, 11. And, um, you know, you come out to Jersey from Staten Island, big culture change. And I didn't know the fire service was really a thing. 9, 11 happens. And again, another big memory. Yeah. I was him for two weeks. You know, I lost all of my family, the, you know, his, he's not close with his brothers and sister. Um, so my uncles and everything like that were firehouse guys. You know, uh Uncle Donnie, Uncle Harvey, Uncle This, Uncle That, like those were those were my family. Yeah. And 9-11 comes around, he's gone when the first plane hits. I don't see him for a week, probably like until I actually physically talk to him. So being a 12-year-old kid going through that 9-11 process. I don't know if he's alive or dead. And then he comes home and he's a ghost. Literally the night he came home covered in ash, woke me up and, and I thought he was dead. I thought it was a ghost. So that was that imprints in your mind. And then for a year, two years, all we did was go to funerals. Me and my little suit at 12 years old, my godfather passed away in the trade, uh, trade center. My godfather was rescued too. I'm that kid in, holding my godfather's helmet because he didn't have kids walk in front of his casket down the, you know, down the street. It was stuff like that. Like all I remembered was pain and suffering just growing up in the fire service. So when I was 13, 14 and kind of starting to shape my life, I looked at him and I'm like, hell no, dude, I'm going to join the Navy. I'm going to be a fighter pilot. I'm going to be maverick top gun. He despised me at that age. Yeah, we just We didn't get along,
0: but it makes sense. Yeah. Makes yeah. Sense. And I think so many guys that grow up in a household like this, where their father's on a very busy urban department where he's in and out and he gives everything back to the job, there's going to be absolute resentment built in as a kid. There's no yeah. doubt. Yeah. Yeah. At yeah. what point, Ray, at what point, though? So you're talking, you know, younger age, eight, nine, ten years old. Right. And then up through at what point, though, because I had a lot of this, too. Uh, not so much for the fire service i mean some of it you know my father missed things for going you know firehouse was a priority for sure but it was also he ran his own business and i resented a lot of that but what i did find though is as you grow up and start to really understand the sacrifices that he's making you you kind of come back around to understand and all of a sudden you have this profound respect for the man
2: yeah when did that happen for you the big transition was I turned on my 16th birthday. He had, he had joined the volunteers um, pretty soon after nine 11 and rose through the ranks, became a volley Lieutenant, volley captain, which again, at the time he's missing my lacrosse games, you know, wow. and stuff. And I'm like, there's this firehouse stuff again. And, you know, so 16, I, I, I gonna, I turned 16 and he comes to me and he's like, well, come to the firehouse with me. And I kind of pushed back a little bit. I, I really didn't have an interest in it at the time I was dead set on going to Annapolis and becoming a fighter pilot. Like I was all in full Mm. product. That was my path. I was walking at the time. He brings me to the firehouse, puts me in gear and was like, you know, what do you think? And I'm like, you know, it's a chance to hang out with him. And I got to see the younger guys at the volunteer firehouse and kids, my age looking at him with admiration and like, like this God amongst men. And I'm like, that's my dad like he's not some god like what are you and then he's crazy he's not yeah special. people started telling me <laughs> stories about him and I'm like I got to see this shit for myself so he puts me in gear we join together and kind of start going on a couple calls well then the first time we go to a fire I'm still a junior too I'm not even it's not even my first fire you're
0: 16 well, years old
2: yeah so I'm I'm watching him take this crew and just knock this thing out of the park they they pulled the a lady from the doorstep they're pulling dogs out and it happened to be a classmate of mine house like they saved this this girl's house that I was in school with and she thanked me a couple weeks later for it that's where I started to really like get the idea I'm like wow they're they're doing something a little different over there and then I I got to continue watching him do that stuff so my focus, really started coming away from the military and, and the whole being a pilot thing. He sat me down one day too. And was like, listen, you kind of fucked up school. So the whole Annapolis thing, isn't going to work out. We kind of got to figure something out here. He gave me the same, the same statement. You know, when you turn 18, you're either paying rent or you're going to school full time and I'm not going for you to drink and party. Yeah.
1: You're never going to split an atom, So just might as well get a real job. There you go.
2: So Ray let, me, Ray, let me, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So just to, just to wrap that up, yeah. um, you when know, we sat down together, I was you know, very passionate about service to the country and I knew what I wanted to do. Tried to join the Marine Corps. He shot that down multiple times, like recruiter in the house. All he had to do was sign the paper and I was gone to Paris Island. So we sit down together and we say, all right, let's make a deal. Marine Corps recruiter gives us an Air Force recruiter. We sign up. Air Force recruiter says, hey, why don't you try to be an Air Force fireman? I'm 17. Need him to sign on the dotted line. He looks at me and goes, is this what you want to do? And I said, Absolutely. And off I went. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. It's kind Ray, of
0: scary. I, I want to ask you this. Um, as the, how often or how much did you protect your kids? Because, like, you're not going to bring it home. You could have the worst day in the firehouse. Some guys bring it home. Some guys put it in a bottle. Some guys hit their wives. Some guys uh, disappear for the days between their shifts. But when you're involved with your kids and so on, I mean, you know, you hear Ray talk about this and I'm sure you've heard that conversation before about how it affected him growing up as a kid. Right. I mean, you know, and, and now he looks back at it and understands the sacrifices and, and the individual you, you are, but for you as a father, it's gotta be challenging too, right? Because you want to protect him from the the real life struggles you're having, especially at that younger age, right? A, a tough That's night at the job, uh, uh, you know, um, a lot of protection built in.
1: It was more in my head protecting him from himself, because mm. I realized the bar was here for him. It was way up there, um, and I realized that back at one of those funerals, he was talking about, as in his Air Force uniform, and it's right after Phil Ruvalo's book came out, and he read it, and they were in the church, we're taking a break, and there's Phil Ruvolo in against the car. I'm like, hey. You know that guy? And he's like, oh, my God, it's Phil Ruvolo. And Phil Phil heard him, and he looked. He saw me. He called you back, hangs up, comes over, gives me a hug. Who's this fine young man? And you know, Phil told him. He's like, you get on this job. You don't call him. You call me. I owe your father a debt I can't repay. And he's like, what the hell kind of debt would you owe him? I'm like, it's a long story. Yeah. And uh, on the way home, he told me, basically, he's like, I never want to walk in your shadow here. I, I, I would not take that job. It's hard. Which was, it, it was a little hard hearing that. I'm like, but you could have anything you want. But then after
2: a while, I started realizing, yeah, he seemed too much already. Mm. So this is right after Iraq, too. So I'm 19. I, I'm fresh home from Iraq. And so
0: you were deployed, right? You yeah. went to Iraq? Okay. Yep. At 19. Mm-hmm. Still a kid. Yeah, yeah.
2: Very much a kid. I actually, and it's funny, the day I deployed was January 7th, 2008. That was the day John Martinson died. Hmm.
1: Picture bringing him to McGuire, walk in, and get had one fish, was his name, the guy from the Bronx. Fish. 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 Guy from the Bronx, he's, you know, he's like, hey, he gives me a little salute. He's like, sorry for your loss. Like, what are you talking about? And they were like, you don't know? I'm like, no. I wow. Really drive him. He says, Yeah, and a New York Lieutenant just got killed. I'm like, Oh, what's his name? Ah, Johnny something. I'm like, Johnny, nice guy. Like, How'd you know that? I'm like, Grew up in him. Yeah, you know, one of my closest friends still on the island. i, mean, I don't to what with Joe Lapointe, the guy that does the ceremonial unit and all that. And that Joe, what a great guy. Yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. Joe, we high school together. and Oh, really? Yeah, there, there's a guy <laughs> that has a GED. Uh, and he told his point blank, I am going to be somebody one day. I'm not going to cruise like you assholes. And he's the man. <laughs> he him. is the man. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. he's yeah. what was labeled, I'm sunshine. So now he's sunshine junior, according to uh, uh, Joe, Joe LaPointe. Um Great respect for Joe. I mean, he, what he's done for the fire department, you know, and um, he he made his own way. You know, after 9-11, he just got promoted and funeral going on, it's disorganized. Next thing they hear his voice, hey, I don't pay attention. And Sal Cassano, who knows this us all, used to fix his car, and <coughs> he's gonna be the commissioner. And he's like, We gotta make some, something something to, to get him to organize these guys and create a ceremonial unit, build it, Joe. They gave him the tools and they let him build it, and that's what the ceremonial unit is today. I mean he's the number one authority. Yeah. On line of duty funerals. And, you know, and so right. it, it's, it, it's a lot of stuff like that, you know, and this is what he had in, in the house growing up, you know, all these different guys and um, yeah, it, it's it, big shoes. Realize that it, he's got a very high bar, you know, and so he's trying to do things now as a volunteer and I got to keep on reeling him in next. You know, we're in the basement, toe to toe, going at each other. You know, I'm the chief. You're not. And he hated that statement. No. Or if I park his ass on the bumper, sit there and don't move. And the Jackson cops come walking by like, hey, you got yelled at again. Yeah.
2: You know, it's yeah. one of the first fires we went to as a as fireman and officer together. He was captain. We're the first new engine. And I'm thinking like, oh, my dad's in the captain seat. I, I got the nozzle, man. I'm I'm set. We get out. Garage is ripping extension to the second floor. He turns around and I'm with all my buddies. You know, we're all young, ready to go. You, you got you on the first line, you grab the backup line, you go in, Raymond, go get the go get the exposure line, sit on the outside. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is a great fire. And you just put me on the outside. And, and then we talked about it later. You know, oh, what'd you learn? You know, what what you know, what's the importance of that? And this and I, it, you know, I didn't realize the grooming that was happening at the time, but man, I was pissed
0: building structure. I mean, you know, when you think about it, I just want to, yeah, I mean, I I get it because I lived all this, right? Yeah. I want to go back. Ray, you forged your own path, though, when you decided not to be a cop. Yeah. And then your son is watching the upbringing he's having and watching what the fire department does and, and how you've, how you built your reputation and foundation with the FDNY. Those are big shoes. He's got to find his own path. And, you know, it's it's hard for It's hard for a kid to do that. I had to do the very same thing. And I ended up going into the family business. I ended up being a volunteer fireman. I ended up doing all these things that followed literally in my father's footsteps. And on top of that, I am my father. I mean, we are very much identical in so many ways, but I find I had to find my way there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, it's it's, when he says the bar was set high, like, I don't think he ever realized how impossibly high oh, that ball the was. side. Yeah. Right. I started realizing what these medals hanging on the wall were like, you know, I used to, he, he had, he had one grab one night and I say one grab, he rescued 17 people from one fire. He set the record for Brooklyn for, for rescues at a fire in one night. And that's when CNN and everybody interviewed him. Okay. Never thought anything about it. But as I started to get older, like I go to the fire Academy, I come back and I'm looking at these metals Class A medals, scuba rescues, you know, 17 grabs in one night as a brand new fireman out of the academy. I'm looking at that going, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm looking at him saying, how the fuck did you do that? Like, it it just seemed impossible. I I live with one of those guys we all talk about, right?
0: That can be challenging. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what I love about that, too, though, Ray, is it holds you accountable. Maybe the bar was set like way up here. Yeah. But it holds you accountable that at least you have to perform to the best of your abilities and you do not get a pass and you will not be able to be subpar or mediocre. You have to push yourself.
2: Yeah. And he was good about it, too. He never he never wanted me to be. Like, one of the things I, I, I really remember from, a you know, an early childhood when I started to get into this was I always used to say, how do I become better than you? Because, you know, that's always the goal, right, yeah. of, of overcome. And he always used to tell me, don't ever try to be better than me. Be the best version you could be. Don't be better than me. Be be a good fireman. Don't try to be a great fireman. Be a good fireman, you know, you, and then you will be better than me. That's always like he he said it. He took the bar and he tried to make it attainable. And that's what was what I always remembered,
0: yeah. I had a moment uh, i wish I wish I knew exactly when that moment was, but there was a <clears throat> professionally and personally with my father where the one day I looked at him and said, "We're at a different place today than we were yesterday. It was this mature moment I had that I was like, I'm going to be forty seven in like two weeks, right? I'm getting old, right? And I'm like, I just I had this moment where I was like, man, I'm looking at him differently. I almost feel like we're equals now. Like I'm, we're on a different level. As it father? What's that? does it feel to be your father? Be your father. <laughs> Tell me about it. Are you kidding me? My kids remind me all the time. You're just like Grandpa. Grandpa would say something like that. I'm like, shut up, get out. I'm like, no more. We're not having this conversation. <laughs> Exactly. There's something to that. And it's like, I'm so grateful for all the hurdles, all the challenges, all the high bar raising, all those things that I had to deal with as a kid. Um, I'm grateful for it now. Yeah,
2: um, it, but- it's. Well, yeah, I used to, that moment you're talking about, mm. it's the moment you realize you're not chasing a shadow anymore. You're not chasing ghosts. The moment you realize that you're just, you're trying to live up to that reputation in that moment. You're not chasing that ghost anymore, you know, and you have to either become that ghost or become your own person to set your own bar, set your own reputation. That's that moment. When you can look at them, you know, for me, looking at him saying, I am so proud of the career you had yeah, and him looking at me saying the same thing. And I'm having, that's when that moment clicks and you're like, wow, I get it. Like I get this, this concept. I get what it's about. Like I finally understand.
0: Well, you can see it through this conversation because you're sitting here talking about things <clears throat> that maybe five, 10 years ago wouldn't have been as comfortable to talk about in front of your own father. Right. Where you talk about your upbringing and the the ups and downs and all that, but you're at this place now together that you guys can sit down and have this conversation with me, which is just awesome. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. And that's really what I wanted to get to with this conversation today was talking about the upbringing and and understanding that dynamic between the two, because Ray, I got to think that your father pushes you every single day, whether it's him physically or mentally, or it's his past or those, the reminder of his accomplishments on the job push you to be better every day.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, even, you know, I, I call him on good days. I call him on bad days, bad calls, bad shifts, even when things are down in the firehouse and I'm, you know, there was a point last year, you know, 2023 was a very difficult year for me personally. And, uh, I reached out to him at one point and I was like, man, I'm, I'm thinking about taking like a, like a break, you know, like a six month mental break just from the firehouse. Like, Cause I, I hate going to work. I hit that, that peak, uh, not peak,
1: hit you, the
2: wall. You hit the wall. And I, I didn't know what to do. And I called him up and I'm like, what do I do? And he said, he goes, take it. Don't take the six months, take a month, see how you feel. You know, and I, I ended up taking about two months away from work, using vacation time and sick time and, and kind of just doing a mental reset. But it, it's exactly what I needed. And having that that kind of leadership and, you know, just fatherly advice to lean on and to know, like, he's been here. He's been in these shoes. He's felt these exact feelings. And to have that, you can't put a price on that.
1: And it's much harder, too, for what you guys do, because like where he is, it's the only house. I just transferred.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, that's a big part of a lot of the conversations that I have with guys across the country. Yeah. They feel like they're stuck.
1: Yeah. You can't transfer and it, it everything has a price.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, and for every action is a reaction, you know, I mean, yeah. Joe called me sunshine, Ray of sunshine. I was a pain in the ass and it just got worse and worse. <laughs> and worse. It was just get more and more frustrated, you know, and seeing the knuckleheads survive and the guys that cause all the problems, and, uh, you know, it, it, to try and I try and explain it to people now. It's it's so different. Um, that gentleman I told you about when I was a rookie up in Harlem, Pete Morgan. We had a guy in a firehouse, crazy ex-Marine. He drove me nuts. And he threw something at me in the kitchen. And I went I went to go take a poke at him. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, him and Chief Bauer dragged me out in, in the day room like, First of all, you can't hit him. He's an idiot. Second of all, you're a probie. You can't hit him. That makes you a bigger idiot. So I'm like, I, I don't, what am I supposed to do? He said, Pete, explain to him about the rule of 10. I'm like, the rule of 10? What the fuck are you talking about? So Pete's like, all right, here's, here's how it works. 100 guys in a firehouse. I'm like, all right, 10 are idiots. I'm like, okay, I get that. Now, take those 10. One guy's a superstar. You're trying to fight the superstar. Everything you do will be influenced by ten. The rule of ten. And I, you know, I do some crisis counseling, and I teach that all now. I've, I've explained it to him. I said you can't, because those ten, that ten percent drives me nuts. You know, I, I'm sorry. It's not my fault. I become part of the one percent that opens their mouth and always doing something. But that's who I am. That's why I became. When my fault, when I did. Betray my father's ideals and become a fireman. He made me promise one thing. I'll always do the best I can. It's partly because he was injured twice line of duty by a drunken fireman running into his co- police call. They were cooping in it, as they called it. Right, right. You know, he's like, don't become a, a piece of crap and this and that. And I realized if they, they explain this whole rule of 10 thing, that's exactly what he was talking about. just in a different way. Yeah. You know, and and that's the way the fire service is today. 90% of the guys are great guys. 10%, eh, they're the ones that get in trouble. And there's always that one that makes the headlines. And unfortunately, in the public eye, that's what um, creates the image of us. You know, as I explained it to a a woman last night who's very upset, Little girl died in Staten Island a couple days ago in a fire. I saw that.
0: Yeah.
1: And she was like, and she's, she's like, can you reach out to that fireman and see if he's okay? I'm like, he'll be fine. Firehouse will take care of him. She's, like, but I feel so bad because she never thought about it until she talked to me. Yes. The family had a tremendous loss. They'll never recover, but they'll go on. But like she said, I never understood the pain that you police, fire and EMS go through see and feel to, I had no idea until I talked to you. And then I realized, you know, and that causes some of the, the rule of 10, some guys break down. Some guys have had other issues in their life. And I, I get that. Um, we all have our moments too, which that's what I said to him. I said, you, you need to clear your head, you know, you can't laterally transfer anywhere. So you, you're going to have to fix it and, you know, figure out how to just, all right, fine. I'm just going to sit here and keep my mouth shut. I'm not going to do your drills or anything else. You do it yourself. And it's not in them. It's hard. You know, cause it's, it's not in me. You know, I walked in 69 engine, 22 years old. I mean, I had the space of my mustache. I couldn't even grow a decent mustache, you know? And like I said, I had to learn Yeah. and I had these raging maniacs that are the best of the best. Don Vigiano, they were all up there. You know, these are the guys that wrote the books. Yeah. You know, they're the guys that, I don't know who they were. You know, I'm just this dumb kid. You know, so I learned from the best. I got, I'm that guy. And something weird's going to happen, or something big's going to happen. I'm going to be there, and it'll be my shift nine out of ten times.
0: I get it. I got. Hey, you know, okay. I'm glad. I'm glad that you recognized you needed to take a few minutes and uh, refocus because I think now the one good thing I can say now about the job, career, volunteer, personally, professionally. People are recognizing when they need to maybe take a half a step back and refocus. And I think that that's important because there are things that can spiral. And I think more than ever today, we, we are more aware of that than ever. Ray, I wanted to ask you with your decorated career and, and being in a rescue company and, and all, you know, a companies, I mean, you're dealing with a lot of tragedy. You're dealing with a lot of plight every single day and night tour. Um, you said the firehouse will take care of him. You know, the guy you were just talking about in Staten Island. For you, how'd you cope? Not well. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to poke and prod and get personal, no, no, no. you know, no, it, but what it, I'm it, what I'm getting at though is like guys that you know, we have to recognize that that the way about how to deal and cope back then was different than it was today. And I know a lot of older guys in your position that have a lot of I don't want to say baggage it sounds negative in the connotation, but it there's a lot that came with them throughout their career that they dealt with because they couldn't deal with it any other way. Ghosts. we have a lot of ghosts in our ghosts. Body. That's a very good way to put it. thank you. Um,
1: the best way I can put it is, yes, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, you know they didn't have crisis teams, crisis intervention, you know you you think about it. In the 1980s, if a cop started breaking down and oh, I feel bad, whatever else, they took his gun.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Now you're on the rubber gun squad and you're, you're labeled for the rest of your career. You know, it's kind of the same thing in the firehouse. You don't cry in the firehouse. You, know, you just go shower, suck it up. You know, and I'm. he was probably only like two years old and we had a roll over on the belt because 241109 was one of the only hearse tools in the 80s. Okay. On the, on BQE merge. So we did a lot of extrication. Which me as a car guy, I was in my glory. Yeah, but um, I come home as soon as he can walk. You no, know, he can barely walk, and I give him a hug, and I'm a mess, you know. And she looks at me. She's like, "What's wrong with you?" I said, "I had an accident last night, and I deal with a kid like that." She's like, "All right, well, what? Wh- why are you looking at him that way?" It's not. But she was just mom at the time. She I had got a- it. Sure, so she didn't get it. You know, and all of a sudden now she's a nurse years later in the burn unit, going, "Oh my God, how do you guys do this stuff? You're you're out of your mind," you know. Or like when I was a volunteer here, I took her to a couple of fatal crashes, and she's like, "You guys are animals. You're going in with no equipment, screaming, hollering, beating, banging, ripping the car apart, yanking these people out, and ambulance comes up and they they have band aids and, and straws." I'm like, "Yeah, this is the real fire department. You know, this isn't a hospital." Yeah. So. Once you look at that stuff, you kind of bring it back and go, we've always done the best we can. Like I explained to this woman, yes, that that guy's heartbroken. He could not save that kid, but her destiny was created before, you know, it's, it's a timing and everything else, you know, type of issue. We do the best we can. We want to save everybody. Now you pull up to an extrication and it doesn't look that bad. And you're looking at the person going, yeah, they're, they're gone. Their body just doesn't know it. And they're talking to you. <laughs> You know, and then now you got to go home and deal with that. But how do you explain that to them? So for me, I would just go in my shop. Sometimes I would just come home. They would see me in the morning. And I'd come home by the time they're going to school.
2: I would just shut the door. It had no windows in it. And I would just work 16, 18, 20 hours. I can name the cars cars he built at the saddest times of his life and whatever that meant to our lives. The 69 Chevelle, the Novas, the Mustangs, the Malibus, like, if that was my thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and you had that, you know, let me, let me ask you this. I mean, I know you retired uh, through injury, correct? Yeah. So, and then um, it was during flight 800, which was a, you know, one of the most notable tragedies to happen in New York city in decades. Right. Yeah. Um, And so would you mind just taking me down that road a little bit and explaining like your you know what that was and and your actions that day i'm just curious I, I i we haven't really talked any stories if you will but i'm i'm curious about a guy that wasn't ready to retire got forced to retire and i i'm i'm interested in that story
1: yeah what it was is uh the scuba program we had wasn't quite ready for what we were going to do out there okay we, we go into east river mm-hmm reservoirs at 30 40 50 feet you know we're certified to to dive but we went out there with all good intentions um i got to the i got called back they, they deemed it a recovery they pulled everybody back i went to the firehouse and uh went home went to sleep next thing i got a call come on back and um so we went out there and it was a couple of days of jerking around it it isn't quite as black and white as they they painted it, but we won't get into that. Yeah. Uh, so this was, I guess, the sixth day into it. Uh, they'd been working on the, the gear and we, we had some gear issues. You know, it was it was older stuff that wasn't supposed to be that old. Um me and uh Bobby Herring were the third team to go that were gonna go down. The first two dive teams had problems and couldn't get down. We got in the water, and Bobby only went down about five or six feet and had an issue. He thought his uh, hood was riding up in his mouth, but didn't realize that he had a bigger problem. We straightened it all out, and uh, we went down, and it's funny because they talk about squeeze in these these suit, and it just it, it's it basically shrinks shrink wraps on you every time you go down a fathom. so, I never had squeeze before, and I tell you what, at eighty-five feet, you thought somebody was digging their nails into your arm. Like, okay, there's a squeeze, got it. Yeah, we adjust.
0: Is that how far? That's where it was, eighty-five feet. No, we were one hundred and twenty-five. Oh, really? Wow, it was deep. How uh, far? How far off the coast? Like, what? What did it? So, um, I should have. Right my-
1: yeah.
0: yeah, it was ten miles out off the east. My riches. It was ten miles off. Yeah, it's actually in,
1: in the beginning of the Gulf Stream. It was a little clearer than what they said. Okay. You probably it, had uh, 30, 40, 50 feet of viz, depending on what you're going on. And this is recovery? Yeah, we were tasked to go down. It was uh, a row of seats. And it was a 300-pound guy still strapped in the seat. Because we know that for a fact, because the Navy went back down on our coordinates and, and got him the next yeah. day. Um, I could see it. But, I mean, it. the floor looked... The ocean floor looked like somebody took a lady's purse and just dumped it out. Wow. All sorts of little stuff. But we got to the bottom and I was actually a free diver, which is not quite regulation. We're all supposed to be umbilical and tethered, AGAs. Um, I was just free diving with all the uh, other stuff. Bobby was tethered with the uh with comms. And you're supposed to turn to each other, show each other the gauges. It's classic scuba. Okay. Okay. Good to go. <clears throat> when I went to turn around and show him, he waved me off, and he was fumbling. I'm like, ah, oh, shit, this is gonna go bad really quick. So I was doing like a quick scene search, and I heard him scream. And when I turned around, his face was purple, and his eyeballs were actually touching the AGA. It was like sucked to his face. He had a full, full primary and secondary shutdown. So he's trying to hit his inflator to go up. All I heard is sh- and him screaming. So, I was lucky enough, I was able to hook into his belt where where he was tied off and pull him back down by his deflator. By this time, he knocked my face piece half off my face. Jeez. So now we're both in trouble. Yeah. So I just hold him like, you know, you, you, you grab, you exhale, you blow, straighten it out, readjust, got all the water out. It's only a few seconds, but it's enough where he had stopped fighting. He was out now. So now I. I'm trying to inflate as fast as, as best I can, because I would have missed him and he would have shot up. He would have been dead instantly. He would have exploded. Um, I was able to get him up to about uh, 40, 50 feet, and then it was just dead weight. So now I'm holding him with my one arm, and I'm just trying to inflate, and I just can't get any more air in there. And um, he's head and legs down. He looks dead man pose but water was clear enough where I actually could see Richie Euler from rescue four. He came in the water. Cliffy Stabner had the comms. They didn't know what the hell happened to Bobby. He screamed, screamed and nothing. The other diver never even entered the water. He's like, no, because they'd seen a 50 foot well. Um, probably about an hour before we went down a couple days before uh, John Norman was going on the the Navy boat he came back, he's like, you guys are out of your effing minds. So like an 18-foot great white out there. Because they were feeding on what was out there. And um, so whatever happened on the boat, I don't know. But uh, Richie got to me, and it, yeah, I think about it, and they left because he came right to me, because they thought I I was in trouble.
0: Yeah.
1: And he looks at me, and he's like, I'm, like, I'm okay. It's him. I mean, the, all, you see the bubbles come out, like, fuck. So, Richie grabbed a hold of him, inflated, and we shot him right up. And it was like, you know, pulled it off his face, and he actually started breathing again, but it caused air embolisms in his brain. So, he he, he was badly injured. Yeah. The reason I mentioned the squeeze is because we got him on the boat, and it, they were, it was on the cane. So, we're, they're flying in, and um, when we peeled his gear back, you could see the bruising on him, like zebra stripes. You know, and there was many accusations made whatever else you know because bobby had had some personal issues but um it just total failure you know it just it's one of those things the gear failed because it was it was old should have been replaced but that money went to other programs you know which is what they did in the back in the day you know to the city only had so much money and um yeah so we triaged him and they calmed me down, they checked my vitals, I'm okay, and I went up to the front of the boat, and I'm sitting in front of the pilot house talking to Harvey Harrell, and, uh FBI agent. And also the FBI agent, he just, he turned and walked away. So I, you know, Harvey, I move over a little bit, and I, as I leaned over to get my scuba gear off, they crashed into the uh, sand, same sandbar the guy hit the day before. But we did it at full speed this time, and I got thrown back first into the railing. Harvey said my feet hit the back of my head. I laid on the floor paralyzed for five minutes. It's, it's a feeling that you can never describe. It's just hot. And I, I'm on the floor. I'm looking at Harvey. I'm in tears. I'm like, I'm paralyzed, dude. And Harvey's like, no, no, no. But it came back. But it was a classic broken back. The disc was into my spinal cord a little bit. Um, got Bobby in. You know, my legs came back a few minutes later. After five minutes, I was able to sit up. I did walk off the boat 20 minutes later. We walked Bobby off the boat. He went right to the hyperbaric chamber. Give me a couple of days off and then went back to rescue. And I told John Ferry, I'm like, I can't, I can't do anything much right now. He's like, no, no, take it easy. So we did a scuba drill. When I went to pick up a scuba setup, I had no legs again. I heard that all the equipment hit the rig. I'm laying on the ground. So that's when they found out, you know, if, after a couple of days in the hyperbaric unit in and out and did an MRI and my back was destroyed. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it was a legitimate New York City Fire Department scuba rescue, but we don't talk yeah. about it. You know, it is what it is. Did he survive? Yes. Yeah, he's living in Saratoga somewhere. He got married, had a couple kids. I mean, I haven't seen him in years, but um, I heard he's doing okay. He's got MS from it, I think. Oh. You know, but... It's better than the alternative. You know, I, I, think we're both very lucky. You know, we were trained very well by, um, Phil Quattrochi and John Emma. And that was the end result. When they investigated it, they couldn't figure out how the hell I did it. And it came down to just, I followed my training, you know, but t- to get your
0: mask back on, to get your, the ability for you to stay conscious and alert down there, getting your you know, focus to get your mask back on to, to be able to get out of that predicament.
1: Right. And, and to be able to bring up a 200 pound dead man, you know, basically because you know, he, he wasn't inflated and I guess I didn't really think about hitting his inflator. I was kind of, I'm, I'm at 40, 50 feet going, this is how it's going to go. This is where I, this is where I die. Oh, if I don't let him go,
2: you know, it's,
0: it was Ray, Right. What's, what's it like to sit next to your father and hear a story like that? I'm sure you've heard this story a hundred times
2: so it it's it's actually kind of ironic too, because uh you know, this was such a huge part of his story and a huge part of his life that at the time, like we talked about before, I never understood. As I got into my fire service career and kind of started hitting a couple of plateaus and several and and several goals, one day I looked at him and I'm like, I'm gonna start diving. I need to understand because it never made sense. I didn't get what happened to be that deep. like that was part of my fire service you know, like at the time, my portfolio that I didn't understand. I didn't know what happened. So I sit here today as a master diver because to me, that was, that was inspiration. I needed to go through the training and I needed to put myself down there 120 feet deep to understand what he went through, to understand him. And it was just a, an obsession that I needed to know what, What it was like what he went through down there and uh it's intimidating yeah the 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 ocean is a different animal man it's a humbling place ocean is uh is a wild place
0: you know ray the rays i i think um so is the fire ground though yeah you know when it's
1: ahead. you think about going to a really good fire and you're a little turned around and you're trying to figure out how you're going to get out yeah you know and do i give a mayday You know, how how am I going to, you know, is this where it's going to be? And it was that type of situation. And, you know, you're 125 feet down. Yeah. It's it's like jumping without a parachute. You know, but I,
0: I think a lot of it has to do with how you hold the job with the respect that you have for it, right? Understanding that we're a piece of the puzzle, a part of the equation, and we're there to hopefully potentially make a difference, whether it's saving a life, putting a fire out, making a rescue, whatever it is. But we're a part of that bigger picture. And sometimes you get it wrong. Sometimes things go south. And I think that's where it's so important that we have this humbling respect for what we do, whether it's a bullshit alarm to the best fire you've been to. I think you you have to maintain that level of respect for what we do because that's how you're going to keep yourself in the mindset that we need to be in. I mean, I, I believe that.
2: I I agree. I mean, I, I, I reinforce it at work. Um, you know, I'm one of the senior guys at work and, uh, you know, I I try to take my crew and my tour and we, we, we read about the line, you know, the NIOSH reports, line of duty deaths all the time. I try to hammer at home because I'm like, guys, this is, this is the life-saving skills. I, I can't say that I've lived this but it's on paper in front of you to 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 put yourself there.
0: We need like, to
2: know put in these spots and know what these guys went through, what went wrong, what we could do to prevent this in the future, and maybe save your life one day. You know, like that's like we talked about in the beginning that that gap we're missing. To me, that's how you bridge it. You you yes. take what's given to you.
0: I would agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, we have to. We can't throw in a towel and say, "Hey, we're missing this." Oh well. We got to find ways to combat it. We have to find ways that if we don't have somebody in our firehouse that can help us or tutor us or somebody that has just a little more street smarts or or experience hands-on, if you're not getting that influence, go find something else that can at least somewhat fill that void. Yeah. We live in
2: an age of information and technology where everything's right at your fingertips. Yes. And I mean, for me, like with, and there's other ways to go about it too. Like for me, the, the obsession with his injury that was a drive to go figure it out and learn everything I could about that to maybe I could prevent one day that happening with fire injuries. You know, what can I learn to, to to try to be the best version of myself so that if that situation ever arises in front of me, I can have all the tools in my toolbox to prevent and fix that. Yeah, I agree Let's with you all. About it. Look at all the books that you read. Like Vinny Dunn writes a lot of great
1: books and it's all information from the safety chief. As a safety chief, all big fires, tragic fires, whatever else, the incident report goes to him. And he's saved all this and he compiles it. But even all your uh, operating manuals, like we had uh, uh, engine operations, ladder operations, PAIDs, and stuff like that. And it's all, every single thing in that book is either from a mistake, an injury, a death. Or something that somebody does. Like we had a uh, a captain in the house. He did garage doors. He actually wrote a PAID, which is basically an operating guideline. Right. Garage doors. Now if your garage door and the spring breaks or whatever else, or you force the door up, a pair of ice grips right by the wheel doesn't move. Something as simple as that, and that's he. So it's all simple little things, complicated things, and it all gets broken down. You know everything that we we do somebody paid a price for it, somewhere along the line or learned a hard lesson from that. And that's, you know, and, and like I said, that's what's lost now because the senior guy can't tell the junior guy what to do. Can't yell at, him. you know, I mean, I got called a fucking idiot more, you know, more time in my first five years in the job than, than my own mother did, you know, and she was pretty good at it, you know, but that's, you know, that's the beating that you get verbally, but then bells go off, get on the truck and it's another chapter.
0: Move I on. gave a, I gave a kid the other day, a nice verbal whipping, like shot one or two pretty stern lines with laser beams coming out of my eyes. He looked at me like he's never been spoken to that way before.
1: And, haven't, And he has. Of you. And he, and that's,
0: <laughs> right. And so afterwards out in the street, when we were done picking up, hold him aside like you know explained why I did what I did Um, but this is, this is this is the part of it that is newer is having to now follow up on it right so it's like me when I was growing up you would get put in your place and it would be hard feelings for a week or two and then you come back to it and there was never talked about again now you do that you ruffle feathers but you have to now catch them after the fact, and be like, "Hey, man, come over here." So let me explain why I did what I did. Let me explain what I was saying to you, right? Let me break this down for you. And you almost have to find a way to communicate with them now on a a level one step down from where I was originally in the conversation, to kind of let it sink in for them to know it's okay. Like it's part of
2: the New Jersey civil service captain's test, man. Like that follow up, you miss that, you lose points on your captain's test because it's such an important part of that chain now, man.
0: Yeah, it's, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's right, wrong or indifferent. It, well, it is different, right? Um, But I think to push this job forward, we can't always rest on the laurels of what we did yesterday. We have to be sure that what we're doing today is done in a way that protects the integrity of the job. And if I have to take an extra three minutes after giving a kid a, a verbal lashing to break it down for him when we get back to the firehouse or out in the street, then that's what I have to do as a senior guy to pick up my game, to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to set this kid up for success. Because years ago, the skin was a little bit thicker. You'd be able to take that and bounce back from it and be better for it. And now today you, you have to give that reassurance and and affirmation that listen, man, yeah, I just gave you a ton of shit, but you're going to come back stronger from this. And I want to tell you why it's just, we have to go that one extra step now. Um, which that
2: verbal, that verbal judo is truly an art form that you have to develop over time. It's, it's
0: hundred percent.
2: It's such a learned skill that, you know, Yeah, I, I've, it was the, one of the harder lessons I've ever learned too. Cause it used to be that way. Like I was used to that military mindset where I have sergeant stripes on my sleeve. I tell you what to do. You don't ask how you when get, I say, it. Jump. get it and done. I carried that over into a young fireman career and I got my ass handed to me. Yeah. because I was cocky, arrogant, stupid, and I had a mouth. And it took a long time to learn I need to learn how to speak to people not just below me, but equal and above to me at the same way and how to correlate what, you know, if I'm speaking to a person above me, I need to use my verbal judo skills as a as a, you know, as a pathway to to make if I want this truly to happen, the goal I'm trying to attain, if I'm speaking above me, equal or below. That's three different methods that I need to communicate with.
0: Yeah. And when your father was in the firehouse, they always had that guy. Like we need to get this. Okay. Go to Vinny's going to help us get that. He's the guy. He's my guy. You need something. I got a guy. He's the guy. And that guy is the salesman. And, and I, I talk about this regularly with a lot of my content. I'm going to be putting out more on this topic. So I'm so glad we kind of jumped into this. We're missing that guy today. We need to teach, as much as we need to teach our lead, our future leaders, our officers, the guys that ride the front seats, even chiefs now, and so on, where we need to make sure that the experience and know-how is equal and on par with itself. We also need to make sure that these guys are salesmen. Like, yeah. some of the best company officers might not be the best firemen, might not be the best tactically and operationally sound. They can do their job. But the one thing they can do is they're a salesman, meaning, and I don't mean that detrimentally. I mean that in a good way, meaning he knows how to talk to Ray. He knows how to talk to Jeremy. He knows how to get a message across or to get something that we need. He's the guy that's down at the, the shops getting us a new saw because he knows how to sweet talk to secretary who gets you into the tool locker. Like that's, that's the salesmanship that we're missing today in most firehouses. And that guy is a pivotal role in the success of a company and in their people yeah
1: go one step further do it you also the verbal judo like you said love that helps you yeah i do I, I like that too that's good but it also helps you on the bad scenes too yes think about it we just segue into the fire where this little girl died it happens all the time, all over the country, and it's sad. It's not a failure. We did the best we could, but we, you know, personally, as well as me, we always blame ourselves. Of course. Had I been a little quicker, had I done this, had I done that. So part of that is also teaching you how to fail. Deal with it, because we're going to blame ourselves. These kids can't handle failure. Mm-hmm. You had to just got, got to go out there and, rub his little butt and tell him, no, oh, don't be mad at me, you know, and it, it, it's sad because if you are actually a real fine, you're going to go and see horrible things, Yeah, horrible situations. You're going to roll up in a car with a family on it that will never recover or see a kid in a car and you know the family will never recover, you know, and I, I don't know anybody who could justify that You know, all right, well, we screwed up and, you know, we had a delayed response. And uh, no, we blame ourselves for everything. And I noticed doing the crisis counseling, it's getting harder. These guys take it more and more personal. because They they don't know how to deflect it. They don't know where to put it. You know, Father Judge used to hang out in a firehouse. And he was such an awesome guy. I mean, he was just, he was regular as rain. You know, it passed (laughs) Potatoes, asshole. Oh, fuck yourself. Sorry, Father. No, nah, no fucking problem. Give me the potatoes when you're done. Uh he was a Franciscan friar. And he would talk. And he always, you know, we never really caught on because we're not always the sharp as pencils in the box. And uh all of a sudden get you know, Jerry Callan would call me up and say, Hey, um, we're gonna have a guest tonight. Ah, all right, and there's Father Judge, and um he actually sat us down one day and he's like, All oh, right, he says, just remember. You guys are all assholes. He said, Right, you're my favorite. I'm like, oh, so I'm the biggest asshole you got to mess with. He he laughed. He's like, it's a it's a love thing. But uh he said, Fourth Avenue, 75th Street, what happened there? Well, we had a fatal here, we had a car crash there. It's right. This three 84, like, yeah, we had this. He said, see what I just did? I'm like, yeah. He said, you guys remember everything. So I learned very early, Harvey Harrell taught me, don't look at their faces. And it makes it easier. I don't I don't see their faces. For some reason, I've learned how to block it out and it helps. But like he said, the you know, reference is one exact time when he said it. He said, You found that guy in the room. Yeah. And he was dead. Yeah. He said, I'm sure you think if you would have found him sooner, I'm like, Yeah, I missed the door twice. Yeah, you know, maybe that five minutes would have made a big difference. So he said, "Explaining, he says, here's what you got to remember, right? Your, your brain is like a thousand rooms. It's rooms in rooms. He said, and You have a room for everything. He said, You now have your dead room, your victims, your your guilty people. He said, And you're going to go in there and you're going to introduce them and you're going to dust them all off and you're going to put him up on the shelf with the rest of them. I said, Yeah, but you know, like, he says, Knock it off. He said, you will remember. You will always remember. You guys remember everything. Yeah. You know where to put it. And that's the unfortunate part. You can't explain that anymore. You know, there's nobody out there telling these stories like that. And uh, you know, and it, it kind of struck a chord last night. I mean, she said to me, Can you reach out to this guy? It's not my place. I'm the old retired guy. You know, and I I truly do hope that the firehouse will take care of you. Because, you know. We all get together. We drink. We tell war stories. You know, people are like, "Oh, hey, they are bragging again." No, it's therapy.
0: Yeah, that's it. That's how
1: we decompress. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's when we're allowed to be weak. We're allowed to get on so and so. You know, hey, you wow. the drive a little faster next time. You get it out. It's done.
0: Well, I'll tell you, Ray, this is my therapy. I get to do this with cool people like you guys. I mean, I get to meet people all over the country. I get to talk about the job. I, I get to hear the stories. I get to, you know, put my opinions, put, you know, insert them where I feel I want to. I mean, this is my this is my therapy. And for you guys joining me today, it's just been awesome. Um, Ray, before I go though, um, Ray the third, um, you have gone all in on the fire service. You've come from a childhood and upbringing of resentment to an understanding, to an appreciation and respect for the job. Um, It's so much so that you do a ton of training outside of the firehouse. I know uh, you work with Bobby Eckert and Eckert fire tactics. I know you're one of their guys and I know you're a regular with them where you do a lot of hands-on for them, but the passion you have, it's exciting.
2: It's, um, it's been a long, interesting road here, and uh, you know, I when I started, when I got on with Bob, I I actually went back and forth with him a couple of times because I never felt like I was ready. Mm. I never felt like I was good enough to be part of that crowd. Um, I mean, those guys are the the staff on EFT is yeah, it's some of the best individuals I've ever met in my life, and they've truly saved my life in more ways than I can ever say out loud i mean gordon joey bobby jeff those guys have truly saved my life like physically mentally and spiritually um when i got on with them that was another level of the fire service where i never thought i would able to be able to achieve but the respect and the humbleness that i feel being able to be part of that makes me so energetic and driven i love that It's it's fuel, man. It's rocket fuel that I love being able to put what I've experienced. You know, I've had a really cool ride in the fire service from growing up to hating the fire service, seeing every bad side of the fire service that there has been, being part of the greatest traditions of the fire service. I've gotten a small taste of every single bit of it. And to be able to be part of that group and to purvey that back into the world makes me feel like i'm doing my one percent to give back because i don't ever want to see a kid struggle because i've been there and i've struggled and i don't want to see that i want to fix it yeah so it's
0: you're doing good things man and uh you know i talk about therapy you know i get to do this but you guys get to sit together have an unbelievable mutual respect for one another father and son I love that because I do it. I do it with my father, and I appreciate those moments. We just had a big moment in our family this week. My father was uh, recognized, uh, and the nature preserve here is named in his honor now in our town, which is just a a huge, huge thing for us. And our legacy will live on forever in our town now with his name on that. And it's just one of those proud moments I have as a son and and, a, a brother. And I just... That's what it's all about, and I think the best message that comes from this today was the fact that we were able to pull this together. Ray, you and I have been talking about doing this for quite a while. I had to put it off a couple of weeks ago when we had those heavy storms that came through, flooding and all that um we just we were out running calls all day and all that nonsense. but you know ultimately, guys, I'm so appreciative that you took some time out of your day just to hang out with me today and tell some stories and Ray Jr. thank you, Brother. I appreciate everything that you've done for the fire service, your storytelling. I think your message today is powerful, and I think it's gonna reach a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Um, I also think too that the the legacy conversation between you two and talking about Ray, your upbringing in a fireman's home, and you know you're gonna it's gonna hit a lot of people in a lot of different ways because so many of us lived that lifestyle. It makes for a really interesting conversation and something that concerns me in the fire service more than ever is how many firemen's kids are not becoming firemen anymore. Yeah. And that is something that is super prevalent in the fire service. I often ask myself, why aren't these guys, why aren't, why isn't this guy's kids following in his footsteps? Like, what is it about it? Did we turn them off from it? Do we not talk about it enough? Is it just so different now? Are we just promoting the the white collar, computers, marketing, business, all that? I mean, we're, we're missing out on the next generation of legacies coming in because a lot of these kids in firefighters homes are not becoming firemen. It and doesn't
1: that- have the star effect. Mm. Grew up with John Wayne you know, when my age and Clint Eastwood and stuff like that. And it was very simple. And then now with the, I hate to say it, but the video game generation, they don't give a shit. The heart's not there. That's the difference. He grew a heart. He saw it. He saw what it took. You saw what it took. Your father taught you heart. Yeah, he did. Not teaching heart anymore.
0: So that is, uh, that is a good point.
2: It's yeah. a tough point, but it's a good one.
0: It is. Um. Yeah, I... There's so much to that, and that's a whole nother episode. You can unpack that for days. You can load up the uh the, the fire department psychologist with that. Yeah, right? Well, guys, thank you. Thanks for joining me today. Um, we've been going for quite a while and it's just been a lot of fun. Um, you know, Ray Junior, I would love to can't wait to meet you, shake your hand, and uh just thank you in person for uh joining us today. And Ray, thank you, brother. I appreciate our friendship. Um, who we are, you know, and uh, you know, the beginning fun story at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, it was, a, it was, um, it was one of those things, man. No, you, no, no,
2: no. no, We've had a weird, you a weird know, what that was the strange path. You know yeah. what
0: it is though? It's built on one thing doing the right thing.
2: Absolutely. And you were, and you, what you did was truly, you know, and how I knew the person you are to be and how I figured out who you were as a person was your actions that you took for okay. someone else. And it was an amazing thing. You know, and it's stuff like that—the little sure. things that'll ever be appreciated. Tear
0: me you. up, man! Get out of here! You tear me uh, up. But it's
2: true. It's true, man. Like you—you showed that it's not just you know competition, whatever you want to call it. It's you were a good man, and you did the right thing. That's what it's based on.
0: Listen, that's it. At the end of the day, do the right thing. That's it. Whether wrong sure. or, yeah. or indifferent, if it's right, and you feel it's right, you go do it. That's it. So, guys, thank you very very much for joining me today what a great conversation i can't wait to get this out i think a lot of people are going to resonate with the message from today we could talk for hours and hours and i'll probably bring you guys back on another day just for war stories ray because you know okay. one one week in the bronx brooklyn and staten island compares to my 30-year career so i can't wait to talk about that but yeah, probably- a
1: two-year-old kid getting relocated to 82 engine wait a minute this is dennis smith's house like holy crap and everybody's like ass a what? you know what you know, so it's it's the ideal, but yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, it was uh, certainly a um, certainly a defining time in the American Fire Service, not just the FDNY. So, thank you, brother. I appreciate you taking your time today, Ray. Thanks for our friendship, man. I appreciate you as well. This was awesome. Don't go anywhere. I'm just gonna sign off the podcast. Stay right where you are, and then I'll come back to you when I when we stop recording. Okay, guys. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the National Fire Radio Podcast 2024. We're off to a big start this year. The Tremors, great people, firefighting legacy. That's what this job is all about. Do me a favor. Take this conversation. Take it back to the firehouse and talk about it. Because when we're talking about the job, we're making the job better. We'll see you at the next one. Jeremy, National Fire Radio. National Fire Radio.